1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're just going to look at, at one verse here, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So he, we talked a little bit about this last week, how we're to sanctify Christ in our hearts as Lord. That is the key, that we... we that, that Jesus is there, and that we sanctify, we set, apart, set him apart as Lord in our hearts. But then he says, and being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, with gentleness and reverence, we are to be ready to give an account for the hope that dwells within us. You know, this whole idea of apologetics, I didn't even know what apologetics was until like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that. I thought it was people saying they're sorry for things. And, and, uh, um, but now it, it's really quite popular among young believers uh, to, to learn about apologetics, to study apologetics, being able to make a defense, being able to give an, an answer, giving an answer for the hope that dwells within us. And we're going to look at the different ways that people have given answers in the Bible. So I want to start with Jesus and we'll start on, in, in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at how Jesus answered the devil, answered Satan, when Satan came at him. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what he did is he referred to the Scriptures. He went right back to the Scriptures. Ladies and gentlemen, I urge you to become masters of the Scriptures. If there's no other work that you read, let it be the Scriptures. Let the Scriptures be the central study of your time. Every day, every day in the scriptures, every day of your life. We've gone over the verses again and again of what happens when we meditate on the, on the word of God. It talks about how we will have success in our lives wherever we go. It'll talk, it talks about how our children will be blessed here on earth, when we, how they will become mighty on earth in Psalm 112. If we, if we uh, make, make the word our delight, how we will be like, Trees planted by streams of water, yielding their fruit in the season in Psalm 1. In Psalm, uh, Psalm 119, over and over again, are the blessings that come into our lives if we meditate on the Scriptures. So this is what the Word talks about. We must be masters of the Word. We must be familiar with the Word and know it, just, just as, as you would know a friend. You're to know the Scriptures over and over again. Let that be be your delight, because what Jesus is doing is he's combating the enemy's attack with Scripture over and over again. He's going to be hit with three attacks, and in each attack he's going to say, it is written, because he knows, and the enemy knows, that once it is written, it has to happen that way. And so the enemy comes at him and he says, you know, you're hungry now, you've been fasting 40 days, why don't you just make these stones become bread? And Jesus said, 
It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Is God really going to sustain you? Is he really going to sustain you? So we get these attacks that come in our mind. This is the way we do battle in our mind. This is the way we testify in all these battles that come our way. And he says, not only am I going to be sustained, but I'm going to be, I am sustained by the word of God. The word of God is like food to me. It is like food. And, and, and as the word says that I have food that you do not know about, Jesus said. And he says, my food is to do the work of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And Jesus is speaking about this. And he says, God sustains me and the word of God sustains me. In verse 5 of Matthew chapter 4, it says, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, uh, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels charged concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So interestingly, the devil comes and quotes scriptures to him. The devil comes and quotes the Bible to him. And he quotes to him the Bible from the book of Psalms. And he talks about how, how uh, um, why don't you just throw yourself down from there? Because the, the Bible says he, he's gonna, he, he'll give his angels uh, charge concerning you and they'll bear you up. In their hands, you're not going to strike your foot against the stone. It's very interesting. The next verse in the book of Psalms, from what he's talking about, it's, it talks about how he's going to tread upon the lion and the cobra, the, the, and, and the young lion and the cobra he will trample down. The imagery from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, where, where the, the head is going to be crushed by the Messiah. And, and he, he goes right back and he quotes and he says, you don't have to put the Lord your God to the test. Will God really take care of you? That's a constant theme in people's lives that they struggle with. Does God really care about me? Will he take care of me? Jesus said, you don't have to put God to the test. It's already established. He's demonstrated his love for us in that he has died for us. He's demonstrated his love for us. And then so the devil came and quoted the scriptures to Jesus and Jesus quoted them back. And then the devil comes again, and it says in verse 8, And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil takes him up to a high mountain, somehow shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he says, I'll give it all to you. I'll give it all to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Go, Satan, for it is written. The third time he said, It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and you shall serve him only. I was just speaking to a group of businessmen this week. I was, it's called a toolbox lunch, where a bunch of businessmen downtown, I went downtown, and they have this free lunch in this hotel. And, and I was a speaker there. And you see these men that are all going after something, but something that's really quite elusive. You spend an entire career trying to get something and then you get there and you wonder, how fulfilling is this really? Is it really fulfilling? And Jesus says, when he was offered everything, he was offered everything that was imaginable on earth, everything. He said, you can have it all. And Jesus said, there's two things that will satisfy you. It's the worship of God and the service of him. You shall worship the Lord your God, and you shall serve him only. It's in the service of him that you will be fulfilled. In the worship of him that you will be fulfilled. 
you will hit that target. You may hit that target in your career, but it's real misery. It's real misery to hit that target and to realize that there's no real joy in this. There's no real satisfaction in this. It is in the worship of the Lord your God and in the service of Him. When you worship Him and you serve Him, you will be satisfied. Do you want satisfaction in life? It is in the worship of God and the service of Him. When you get yourself up to worship Him every morning, when you get yourself to church, this has great value, has great value in your own life, has great value in your family's life. Because life starts to take on very little meaning and very little joy when you get out of the worship of God and when you get out of the service of Him. Service to Him is much more than just church attendance. It is busy about something. So that each week you have some activity that you're doing in service to the Lord. Something that you don't get paid to do here on earth, but that you are doing something in service to the Lord. This is how Jesus was giving a defense for the hope that dwelt within him. Now let's look at at other people in the scriptures. So let's look at Peter and how Peter gave a defense to the Jews. So when Peter was confronted by the the Jewish authorities in Acts chapter 3, So Peter is writing to us in 1 Peter and telling us to be ready to give a defense for the hope that dwells within us. But in in Acts chapter 3, we can see how he gave a defense. Now, many people ask me, how do you share with a Jew? I'll give you some, some advice on this. When you share with a Jew, you never want to suggest that you are going to be converting them. You are going to bring them to seek the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all the more, all the more. The Bible speaks of Jews making teshuva, returning. They are returning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are not converting. The Gentiles convert from seeking idols to seeking the Lord. The Jews return. They return. And and, uh, immediately you will get resistance from a Jew when you try to share with them if you suggest that you're going to convert them to a Christian. No, you are going to bring them back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul never said that he was a Christian. He said that I am a Jew. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. He even knew his tribe. So for everybody who thinks that, that by the first century all tribal identity was lost, Paul knew his tribe. And, and, and uh, Anna knew her tribe. She was from the tribe of Asher. The identity was not lost. But in any case... Uh, uh, Christian, the word Christian was things that other people call them. Other people call them. Every instance in the New Testament, it was other people call them Christians. To the point where Peter tells them, don't be ashamed of that name. It was a derogatory name. He says, okay, don't be ashamed of it, but it was what other people call them. It was what King Agrippa call, said to Paul, you're going to make me into a Christian. And, and uh, uh, it, was, it was what they were called in Antioch. You're bringing them back, and look at what he does. He brings the Jew back to the Scriptures, back to the Scriptures over and over again. Peter, uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 12, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, so he's talking to the men of Israel, so he's speaking to Jews here, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us as, as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So what he did, he says, God, 
It's our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's bringing them back right to their God. And, and what he says is, is that, is that uh, you disowned the one that God sent, his servant, the one whom we were expecting. You disowned him, the holy and righteous one. You see how he digs this thing in. Let the gospel cut and hack. Let it do that. Let it convict of sin. This is a good thing. People need to be convicted of their sin. And he says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, he's saying this is all our prophets, all of our prophets have announced this, by the mouth of all the prophets, that Christ would suffer and thus be, he has thus fulfilled. When he says that his Christ, his Messiah, would suffer, fulfill, because they knew about the scriptures. He's saying it's been fulfilled in your presence. It's been fulfilled. This is the way you share with the Jew, that these are your own scriptures. It has been fulfilled. Then he says, therefore, repent and return. This idea of return. You're to repent and you are to return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wicked ways. You see how he keeps bringing him back to the scriptures. Keeps bringing it back to the scriptures. That's what he does. And he says, this is all of everything that was prophesied. Now to the, to, to, uh, to the Gentile, it was different. If you, if, you look, if you look in Acts chapter 10, so that was to the Jew. But now in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, verse, let's start reading at verse 34. And this is where Peter is, is in the home of Cornelius, who's a, a Gentile home. He says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So what he does is he refers them back. He says, they knew. They had heard about this. They had heard about all of these things that were going on. And, and uh, he's referring them back to this. But it is all around Jesus. Again and again, it is around Jesus. Whether it was to the Jew or whether it was to the Gentile, it was all around Jesus. The focal point 
of defense of our faith is Jesus. He is the focal point. He, when we preach the gospel, we are preaching Jesus. And he goes right back, and what he said to the Jews, he talked about the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. He does the same thing here. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Again, you preach the resurrection. Never be afraid to preach and speak about the resurrection. Why some people would preach the gospel and leave the resurrection out is absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. One man was showing me a, a new pattern of, of witnessing to Chinese people where it's based on shame and, and uh, uh, because he says Chinese people respond to this and there was no talk of the resurrection. I said, this is an idiotic pattern. This is a pattern which a major ministry was going to start using. And I said, this is a crazy pattern. Whatever happened to the resurrection? Paul said, without the resurrection, I mean, it, our faith is in vain without this. It's absolutely useless. That's why Paul said we must believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He preached the resurrection. But it wasn't so much citing of the Old Testament scriptures. It was the preaching of the resurrection. Let's look now in, at, at, uh, at Paul. In, in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, we'll, we'll look at Paul and, and, and we'll see, see the way he preached. First, how he preached to the Jew. How did Paul preach to the Jew? And every city that Paul went into, he first went into the synagogue. Because just as Peter had said, as we read, where he said, it's come to you first, Paul always delivered to the, the gospel to the Jew first. He came into the town, the first place he would go was the synagogue. In Paul at Thessalonica, in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. And now they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Okay, so when they, when they went to this town, they went directly to the synagogue of the Jews in, in verse 1. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths in a row. For three weeks in a row, he went and what did he do? He reasoned with them from the scriptures to the Jews, he went right back to the scriptures. He said, this is what's been written. It's now been fulfilled. To the Jew, he went right back to the scriptures. He was bringing them back to their roots. This wasn't a new thing for them. He was showing them in their own scriptures. That's why Peter was saying, Moses prophesied this, that this prophet is going to come and you'd better heed him. That's the prophet Jesus who has come. And he's explaining to this, and then he's explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. So he's showing them, he's probably bringing up Isaiah 53, how he had to suffer and how he was going to rise from the dead. This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. This is the defense. This is where, Paul, where Peter said, be ready to make a defense. 
they had different types of defense to different groups of people. This is the way they did. When I did prison ministry, I spoke to people that were incarcerated in the prison differently than I speak to college students because generally many of them were not that educated. So I spoke on a little bit different level. The message was all around Jesus, but I spoke to them differently. Our message has to change depending on who we're speaking with. This is something that will help you in business. Sometimes you see scientists and they're brought into a business setting and they say, explain to these businessmen the work that you do. And they start showing these plots and these molecular structures and these graphs and the business people are like, they don't know what to do with that. They don't know. You have to speak to business people in terms of business people. You put up dollar signs. <laughs> this is going to make money for you. This is how it can make money. And these are the types of multiples that you will see. You learn to speak differently to different groups of people. And, and uh, uh, this is how he's speaking to them. These are people in the synagogue. These were people that were seeking after God. And then he says, this Jesus, in verse 3, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He brings in Jesus. You don't leave Jesus out of this. There is only one way of salvation for the Jew, and it is through Jesus. It is through Jesus. There's no other way. So you bring Jesus right back, show them in the Old Testament that it's this Jesus. It says that some of them were persuaded um, in addition to a, a bunch of God-fearing Greeks. That meant Greeks that had converted to Judaism, they were extra receptive to this. And they started coming to the Lord. And, and so that's how he would speak, speak to the Jew. And then if you, if you go down in verse, um, uh, in verse 10, you see he goes to Berea. And immediately when he goes to Berea, where did, what does he do? He goes into this town, he goes to the synagogue. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So he met, went immediately to the synagogue, he was showing them from the scriptures, and they started looking at their own scriptures. They started studying their own scriptures. He brought them back to the word. You tell a Jew, I want you to be a better Jew. Personally, I am a much better Jew than I ever was before I came to know Jesus. I was a secular Jew and I had very little to do with Judaism, knew very little about it. But if you had asked me, I'd have said, I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. That's all I knew. If you'd asked me, I'd have said that. I had no idea what that meant. But uh, uh, here... You're bringing them back to the scriptures. And many believed. And it says in verse 12, Therefore many of them believed among a number of prominent Greek women and men. Uh, but the, and, and, and so you see that, that there were many Greeks that were, 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 had converted to Judaism and they were particularly sensitive to this and particularly drawn. Now you see, in, now when Paul is speaking now to, to um, the Gentiles, he speaks differently. So let's look at the way Paul addressed now Gentiles. So this is in the same chapter, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So he was in the city of Athens, there's all these idols all over the place. And, and you, you, can go, you can go to Italy today 
You can go to, and, and you will see lots of these idols that were these, these idols that were around. And you can go to Greece today and see these idols. And a lot of them are, 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 are still around. And he says, he just saw the, the city was full of idols. And then he was reasoning in the synagogue. So he's working with the Jews in the synagogue and many people were believing. But then in verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others were saying, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So I want you to think about that. Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Never think that that is going to be too hard for people to grasp. Well, that... We'll get to that later. No, he preached Jesus and the resurrection. The resurrection is the power of God for people to get saved. Whenever I preach the gospel, I spend more time on the resurrection of Jesus Christ than on anything else. That is the key. That is, that is the place that you go through in order to get to God. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus and his resurrection. This is what he was preaching to these, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He wasn't like, well, you know, That'll, that'll be lesson two. No, lesson one was Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know that the, what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So, Paul is now going to be proclaiming to, to them, uh, um, uh, to, to these Gentiles, uh, the message of the gospel. So, in verse 22, it's really interesting what he does. So, you young apologists, look at this. So, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, if I did that, many of you would probably reprove me. For thinking, why would you take an idol? So, so there were lots of idols. But in one place, there was, there was, there was just this, this, this block of, of, of stone, and there was no idol on top of it. And it said, to an unknown God. And Paul said, I was looking at the objects of your worship, and I saw one that said, to an unknown God. What you have been worshiping in ignorance, I am now here to proclaim to you. Paul, how can you take that idol, that empty pedestal of an idol, and use that to leverage a discussion about Jesus. I mean, Jesus is so far above that, the God of heaven and earth, and you're going to refer to that? Not me. That was Paul. So when people take certain, do certain things and use that as a lever for preaching the gospel, I don't like to mess with it. You know, you could have said that this is, you know, that, that's not a good mixing of an idol with Jesus. I mean, Paul did it. Paul used whatever was there to reflect something about Jesus Christ. And he, in fact, went in and praised them. He says, I can see you're very religious in all respects. I mean, so he's saying good things. He doesn't say, well, you stinking idol worshipers. No, he went in there and he was doing something in order to bring the gospel forth. This was the way he was defending his faith to these people that had put, that had put him there and said, okay, tell us what you got. This is the way he did it. And then he says, 
in verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served with human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. So what he's doing is he's, he's saying, hey, guys, we are all one. The Jews lived so separately from the Gentiles. They had separate communities. He is saying, hey, guys, we're all one. He is bringing us together. We're all one. He's not proclaiming that, that, that he's Jewish, that he has anything up on them. He says, we're all one together in this. Uh, verse 27 that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your poets have said, for we also are his children. So what does he do? He quotes their corrupt poets. You know, he takes this, 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 this rock without an idol on it. He says, this one that doesn't have an idol, here's the one I'm, I'm, I'm here proclaiming to you. And... I'm going to quote from your poets, for we are all his children. For we also are all his children. He is quoting these secular poets of their day. He is using whatever he can to leverage for the gospel. That's why I don't mind what people do, whatever you can do to proclaim the gospel. I remember there was a, a guy when I was, when I was a, a, a young student, they used to have open-air preachers come on campus. And they would stand up and they'd start proclaiming the gospel just openly. And it was called confrontational evangelism. And they'd say the wildest things. I mean, there was one guy, his name was uh, 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 Jed Smock. And and, uh, um, he used to proclaim all over universities. And and he would say the wildest things. He would say things like, um, uh, all the prostitutes in this city are out of business. They've all gone out of business because they're not needed. Because the sororities are here on campus. This is what he would say openly. He proclaimed this. And people would be, and you know, people would stop and they'd look, who is this guy saying this? And he had a big booming voice and he'd say this. And what I just told you are the nicer things that he would say. You know, to this generation, the students would keel over if they heard that. I mean, to the present generation. But then, you know, students, you know, they turned and they looked. And so it was confrontational. And one day we had Jed come speak to our little Christian group. And he was much more sedate and calm, and he wasn't this confrontational. And people asked him, why do you preach these things? He said, well, everybody says that I do it wrong. But I like the way that I do it wrong better than the way that they don't do it at all. And there's a lot to that. You know, often when we're critical of other people and the way they're preaching the gospel, they're doing it wrongly in our mind but they're doing it better than the way that we don't do it at all. Here he's preaching the gospel. He even quotes from their own poets. Then he says, Being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. So now he's coming at their very idols. But he's saying it in a nice way. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all people everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. 
again, he speaks of the resurrection. He speaks of their sin, that there's going to be judgment upon you. And he speaks of raising Jesus from the dead. This is what he speaks of. Again and again, it is Jesus and his resurrection. It is Jesus and his resurrection. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear more again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Erepagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So some of them believed. Some of them believed. And they said, we'll hear more of this. Some of them scoffed. People are going to scoff at you. Don't, don't think, oh, my feelings are so hurt I preach, and they just sneered at me. Here, it happened to Paul. This is life. You want to preach the gospel? You're going to get your feelings hurt. People are not going to receive it. And this is the way he preached the gospel. They made a defense for the hope that was in them. It was always around Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus and his resurrection. And he let the gospel cut right at them. He talked about their sin. He talked about the judgment to come. Very often you can be speaking to somebody, they don't even realize they're sinners. I didn't realize I was a sinner until I read Matthew 5.28. Whoever looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, and that convicted me because I didn't know how to look at a woman any other way. And this, is, this convicted me. Very often you will find that people aren't receptive because they don't even realize yet that they're sinners. And you have to show them that they're sinners. The Bible says all liars, all liars are going into the fire. I was speaking with a guy who was like in his 70s. And until I pointed out, I said, have you ever told a lie? He says, little lies, not big ones. Because he had told me he's not a sinner. I said, have you ever told a lie? He said, little ones, not big ones. And I showed him right there in the Bible. All liars are going to the fire. It doesn't say little ones excluded. You're going to the fire. You, sir, will be going into the fire. And it got his attention. And he got saved. He got saved that very sitting, that very day. Because the truth of the gospel is there. That there's going to be a judgment. Jesus Christ has died for our sins and he has risen from the dead. The gospel is clear. If you don't know the Lord, I urge you, give me an opportunity to share with you. I'll be glad to share with you one-on-one. I'll share the gospel with you. Share the Lord and you'll get saved that very day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercies, for the grace of God. And Lord, I pray your continued grace to be showered upon these young people, that they would learn to give a defense for the hope that is within them, that they would learn to, to change their conversation depending on the audience, depending on their educational level, depending on whether they're Jew or Gentile, depending on their background. Father, I pray that you would do that in their hearts, that you would teach them to make a defense for the hope that is in them. But more than anything, Lord, that they'd be students of the Scriptures so that they would never lack a word. Father, that they would be filled with scriptures, filled with verses that they can call upon, that would strengthen them. And so, Father, that when the attack comes from the enemy, the attack on them as to whether God cares about them, whether he's going to provide for them, whether he's going to take care of them, whether he's going to fulfill them, that they would be able to call upon these verses just as Jesus did that elevated him above the enemy. Father, I pray your grace upon these young people. Lord, have mercy on them, I pray. And may Jesus Christ be glorified. For the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.